Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman. I'm Pastor George. And what I have for you today is an interview with Dr. O. Palmer Robertson that was conducted by Pastor Darren Stone and myself back in the fall for a podcast that we do called Grace to Stand. This interview was conducted right after Dr. Robertson burst on the scene after last year's General Assembly, where he made that profound speech in favor of then Overture 15. Many people had assumed that Dr. Robertson had already gone to be with the Lord because he'd been in Africa as a missionary for the last 25 years and only recently come back. But I can tell you, being in the same presbytery, serving with him in Piedmont Triad Presbytery, uh, that he is very active, very passionate, very energetic, and just a great blessing to so many of us. So this interview originally was broken into two parts on Grades to Stand, one of which ran on this podcast, Presbyterian and Reformed Churchmen, early on when, when I first launched uh, this show. And also, I think the interview ran in full, I believe so, on PresbyCast, and so you may have heard it there. And so we're running it here again because we've had many more listeners as this podcast has grown and many of you might have missed it. And also to get the full length episode, because like, as I said, I only ran half of it on this podcast. So I know you'll enjoy it and it'll be a great blessing to you uh, now to hear from Dr. Robertson. Well, here we are on Grace to Stand, Pastors George and Pastor Darren here and Oh, man, this is exciting. We have a, a guest that we've been wanting to have on since the beginning of this uh, this podcast starting this summer, and that guest is Dr. O. Palmer Robertson. He's a theologian. He's a pastor. He's a missionary. He's been in the PCA since its founding. He spoke on the floor of General Assembly in 1973, the very first one. Uh, he's the author of the Christ of the Covenants, which is just an amazing book on covenant theology that uh, I really think has shaped a lot of how a, a lot of us think about covenant theology, even before we read the book, because it's so ingrained in so much of the teaching. Uh, Dr. Robertson teaches at West, or he has taught at Westminster Theological Seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary, and even my own Knox Theological Seminary. And so uh, we are just blessed. He is back from Africa after a few years now. He's been there for 27 years uh, on and off. And so we're excited to have uh, you on, Dr. Robertson Palmer. Uh, thank you for being on the call with us. Thank you so much. And it is such a privilege for me to visit with you and to share whatever can can be encouraging to the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Awesome. Dr. Robertson, I have a just a, a funny story just about your book, Christ of the Covenants. When I was in seminary at RTS Jackson, I took covenant theology my very first semester of seminary, and that book was assigned to us. Ligon Duncan taught the class, and um, I, I somehow found myself on a flight one time. I was flying uh, somewhere back to Jackson, and I sat next to this Jehovah's Witness guy, and uh, and and he asked me what I was reading and I told him about it. And, and he said, um, Oh, I, I just, I don't think that, that 
religious authors should be writing books because they're just out to make all this money off of their writing of books. And, <laughs> you know, I am sure that you have taken many a trip to Hawaii off of the proceeds from Christ of the Covenants. But uh, I, I just thought, well, what a, what a ridiculous thing to say, but kind of humorous thing to say as well. But that, that book in particular, along with, with, uh, many of your other works um, that I've had the privilege of, of reading have been monumental in my own personal understanding. They've been a great service to the church and we're indebted to to uh, the Lord first, but to his work in you and, and how you have, um, through your scholarly work and pastoral work, uh, so greatly benefited uh, those of us who've come behind you. So but we're grateful for this time to, to just sit down and have a little bit of a conversation today. Well, well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that word from from the Jehovah's Witnesses. I, I can guarantee you made a lot of money out of that book. And I haven't been to Hawaii yet. I don't expect <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, one of the reasons, uh, Palmer, you know, you're, you're in Piedmont Triad Presbytery with Darren and myself, and... Um, but you've been away for a little while too, but one of the real reasons we want to have you on is it was, it was hailed as a, a monumental moment that you were at general assembly. You were taking pictures with people at this general assembly. You got the chance to speak at the general assembly. And I've just heard on other podcasts and other places, how excited, uh, they are and were that you were there and active. And I said, man, we gotta, we gotta hear from. Uh, this dear saint who's been with us since the founding of our denomination and, and hear some of his perspectives. And so uh, that's that's part of why we wanted to have you on. Well, thank it, you it, very much. And it's uh, it was a real joy to be back among the, the brothers again. And, you know, there's nothing like a general assembly. The, the singing is absolutely inspiring and uh, anticipating what heaven will be like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, uh, Dr. Robertson, you have not just wandered off into the sunset in the past several years since you moved here to the triad. You recently put out a, a, the first volume of a book, uh, Christ of the Consummation, a New Testament biblical theology. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, about that book, what compelled you to, to write it, and what some of your objectives were in, in writing that great book. Yes, it was a real joy for me to finally get to writing in the New Testament. I actually mm -hmm. did my doctoral studies in the New Testament, but all the time my, my great interest was in biblical theology, which means mm -hmm. you start with the Old Testament and see the progress of redemptive revelation. You try to trace out the process by which God has made his wonderful plan of redemption and restoration of the whole universe through the, the gracious working of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by that process of restructuring the the history that leads toward the new testament some fresh insights some stimulating fellowship with the truth of the lord comes through mm -hmm. and you 
my experience at least, is to receive many blessings. So I, I started with the uh, Christ of the the Christ of the Covenants, and uh, then I went from there to uh, the Christ of the Prophets, which is the next phase in the rev in the Revelation. Then I went to the Christ of Wisdom in the Old Testament, which is a much neglected but n much needed. Mm -hmm portion of the Old Testament scriptures. And then I went to the the flow of the Psalms, the the development of the the book of Psalms and how it also has a structure to it. And all of that pointing toward its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now mm -hmm. when you turn to the New Testament again you can approach that from a biblical theological perspective, which means you begin with the first revelations of the New Testament. I, I ask people sometimes, what is the first revelation, the first revelational experience? And often people will think, well, it must have been the written, the writing of the Gospels. No, there was something before that. And finally, you trace it back to the angelic messengers that broke through in this tremendous way of thousands, myriads of angels appearing in heaven to break the news that mm -hmm. now finally everything is coming to its consummate fulfillment. So that's, that's the idea of this book, to pick up where I had been heading all of these years of the past to bring it to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Was this your aim from the very beginning to devote your your scholarly and pastoral career I guess in your writing you know starting from the beginning and going all the way here and now and now in this stage of where you're at in life moving into the New Testament and and completing this volume of of books on this covenant idea? Well, Yes, I'd, in, in my 30s, as I began my <laughs> teaching career, I, I began to develop this, this concept of mm -hmm. where I might go if the Lord sustained me, and <laughs> here we are. We'll see whether mm -hmm. I'm able to finish this project, which I would mm -hmm. love to do by the grace of the Lord, and would appreciate mm -hmm. your prayers to that end. Oh, wow. That's, that's awesome. So what is... What's the difference in the volumes? This you've finished, you've completed volume one. What is the the topic or the scope of volume one, and where are you going in volumes two and three? Yes, volume one is the testimony, and I'm using this word deliberately because uh, it's there's a distinction and a, a lot of thought about apologetics is behind this. Also, how to to communicate the gospel. And I, I think the way that God has communicated his gospel throughout history is by testimony. Mm. You know, you you can uh, argue with, with reason, but it's pretty hard when the blind man says, I don't know what, what you're telling me, but this much I know, I was blind and now I see. Amen. Now, what what are you how are you going to argue with that? There's the man standing mm -hmm. in front of you and he says, I was blind and now I see. Uh, that's mm -hmm. and God has given us these testimonies. 
and very interesting. I, I started with the four Gospels and the testimony of the four Gospels. And here you have John in the inner circle of the three. You have Matthew, the tax collector, who was one of the very early ones that was called of Jesus that was there from the very beginning. You have Luke, who very carefully tells us that he went to eyewitnesses. These are the testimonies that he collected from eyewitnesses. And then you have Mark's gospel, which traditionally, and I do argue with some extensiveness, at least a, a few pages, that there are a lot of indicators within the gospel of Mark itself that he's giving us Peter's version of the gospel. So that you have Peter, you have Matthew, you have John as first-hand eyewitnesses, and these news comes through Mark, but then you have you know, Luke and, and again emphasizing that it's eyewitness. So it's testimonies to the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus by eyewitnesses. Then the, the second uh, book, and, and, I, and I might say, uh, well, I'll leave that for another time, but the <laughs> second volume is the testimony of the book of Acts and the Apostle Paul. And again, mm -hmm. I've followed this from a redemptive historical perspective. And interestingly, as you wouldn't be surprised of this, that the book of Acts follows a process exactly according to Acts 1.8, first in Judea, first in Jerusalem and Judea, then in Samaria, then unto the uttermost parts of the earth. But if mm -hmm. you work closely through the book of Acts, you will see that there are distinctive phases that the church goes through in that period. Just one interesting fact is less and less in terms of the miraculous there's lots of miracles in the early portion of Acts, but mm. much less. It's, you know, Paul just falls into a shipwreck like everybody else. And bitten by a snake, of course, he, he is apparently miraculously sustained. But uh, so there's progression in the book of Acts. I, I start, I will be starting with the speeches in Acts. You have a period of about 20 years where nothing has been written and the whole gospel is being carried on through speeches. So I will be looking at the speeches. And then in Paul, you can see three phases of the Apostle Paul. And I, my hope and prayer is I will be able to bring out the various emphases of the three phases of the Apostle Paul in the second volume. And that's, I'm in about the middle of that at this point. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I, you know, so I, I don't know if you remember because it was two years ago, but I, you, you gave, uh, I had the honor of, of reading some of your chapters as you were working on them. And it was just such a blessing to see how you were developing the thought in the gospels and, uh, in interacting with you on those. And so I really appreciated that. So thank you for that, by the way. Yeah, and George, thank you so much for reacting with me in that. That is so valuable. 
you know, you, you write, one of the problems of writing is that you're closed in by yourself and your own mind, and you say, what have I got here? Is this any, is this meaningful at all? Is this going to bless the church? And to get some interaction is is so valuable. So thank you very much for interacting along the process. Yeah, you're welcome. The, the honor's mine. But I, I love just hearing from your, as we're talking now with, with what Darren asked you, the fact that these three volumes are the, you know, the Christ of the consummation is really the consummation of your lifetime worth of work. And so uh, that's phenomenal. So is the third volume then going to be, uh, you know, the other yeah, the other the letters and revelation? Be, you know, the general epistles and revelation. I, I don't like the the word general epistle because that's that's too general. Actually, what you have is, is the original apostolic witnesses. Mm. When you think of that, you have the, the, the letters of John, who was an mm -hmm. original apostolic witness, again, testimonial witness. Then you have James, who was the oldest, apparently the oldest brother of Jesus, who was with him even before and during his lifetime, didn't believe in Jesus and then was lifted up to a high point in the, the life of the church. You have Peter in his early days, and then later in his second epistle, on his deathbed, as it were, and he's bringing a special testimony to the church at large. And, uh, of course, Hebrews is is a very special interest of mine. That, that was my special concentration in, in graduate study, and I've been waiting for about 50 years to get back to, to Hebrews <laughs> again. Jude is very likely a, another brother of Jesus. So you're, these are those that are the original apostolic, not apostolic in the, in the fullest sense in every way, but the original apostolic witnesses, and they need to be treated in that way. Mm. So what, what I love about everything that you've said is you, you're a theologian, but I think, would you say your heart is a missionary first? Like, because you, because I see how your missionary focus with the propagation of, and spreading of the gospel by the spoken word witnessing is, is coming out in your theology. So you've been in Africa for, uh, almost 30 years. I mean, maybe you could reflect a little bit on your life as a missionary and how you, what do you view yourself as first? I, I guess I'll ask a missionary, a theologian, a pastor. Oh, yes. I, I, I've been uh, a jack of all trades and good at none. I've <laughs> been in all of them. But uh, yes, I've been particularly working on, on Paul and if I could encourage everyone in the English-speaking world, if they could just take their Bible and as they go through Paul, every place and throughout the whole New Testament, and with a pencil, just strike through the word Gentile and write nations, because that's what it is. It's ethnoi. It's nations. Mm -hmm. And I can guarantee you that it will open your eyes to just how much the whole of Christianity is a missionary 
concept, a reaching of the nations. I am finishing up on, on Romans right now, and <laughs> Paul does the most amazing thing in his as he's concluding in chapter 15. He quotes from four different sections of the Old Testament, all climactic sections mm. of the Old Testament and in their particular area, and every one of them celebrating the nations as they're brought into the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, his, his and his kingdom. So, yes, nations is everything and missions is everything. And in terms of my, my own experience in, in missions, uh, you know, whenever we have people visit us on the mission field, I say, don't come thinking you're going to be the big blessing to these people out here. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. should be prepared to receive more blessings than you can give. And I have, <laughs> if I could only communicate to the church, to the PCA here, all the blessings that I received from the African church and the mm. African believers, you know, the PCA would, would have a, have a, prospect with a big sunrise ahead of them wow yeah that's that's a great word dr robertson and you know as you're talking about missions i'm i'm even thinking about in our own contexts and in, in various cities and and places in which we live um one of the one of the blessings of of living in the united states is is that in many regards the nations have come here to the, to the United States. I mean, we have people of all different ethnic backgrounds and, and all different nations of origin who are even in our own country, um, different linguistic groups and so forth. And one of the questions facing the, I think the church in our time is the issue of contextualization. So how we go about engaging with, uh, with the world many of whom have a, a very different culture uh, than that of ourselves, but how, how we contextualize the gospel, how we contextualize the word in our ministry without compromising it or capitulating to the spirit of the age. And you having been someone from... Uh, from from Mississippi and Southern Presbyterianism, and also uh, seeking to minister in the, to the African American context in, in Mississippi, as well as overseas in Africa, I'm sure you've had to encounter a, 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 that question quite frequently throughout the course of your ministry career. What what would you say to us in in our time regarding the issues of contextualization? and faithfulness as well well if if i were paul the apostle i i would point you to well i wrote you about this and in, in romans you didn't get this you stopped <laughs> with romans one through eight and were thrilled with all that and then nine through eleven and the future of israel and so forth and you you completely ignored what i told you in romans 12 through 16. If you would go back to those chapters, you would understand, as I stress from so many different directions, don't, don't you recognize that I used four different Greek words for love in those chapters? Mm -hmm. And one of those 
words that is used there is love of strangers. That's mm -hmm. one word. And another word that is used is to love other people as though they were a part of your family. It's the mm -hmm. only in this one mm -hmm. place when I was writing Romans. <laughs> and I, I explained <laughs> to you that, you know, when, when you see a foreigner, you, you kind of, you know, their, their hair is a little bit different than yours. And mm -hmm. there is the silly centimeter of difference in color and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I told you that you, you need to, to pursue them, you need mm -hmm. to not be afraid of them, but to pursue them and to pursue them, to view them as though they were a part of your intimate family, like your brothers and your sisters. And if, mm -hmm. if you will do that, then you, and if you'll do like Christ did, who did not seek his own things, but sought the things of others, and as Paul said, he is willing not to even eat meat while the world stands if he's going to make his brother to fall. If you will just take that one principle of love and expand it, as I tried to tell you in those chapters that are so neglected in my book to, of Romans, then you know, most of those issues would would take care of themselves. I, I've been working at the request of the Presbytery with S Sudanese brothers over in Greensboro, and mm -hmm. their church is entitled Great Commission Church. Isn't that a great name? Yeah. And in the, these are big Sudanese. One of them must the pastor John must be six five and uh, two hundred and fifty pounds or something like that. And he's a he's a just most wonderful, loving person. But mm -hmm. I went to his worship service, it's totally different. I felt so at home because it was like being back in Africa mm -hmm. again. And the style is quite different. And I don't think that that contextualization means that we lose our identity in our relationship with mm -hmm. other people. Mm -hmm. But when I'm with them, I eat with my hands, and it tastes so much mm -hmm. better if you eat with your hands. <laughs> and they appreciate anything you do that just being a part of them. I invited them to my house and cooked them some red beans and rice, and that was that was it. You know, I had crossed the cultural mm -hmm. bound. There was no problem in communication with them, but. They're going to have some distinctives that are going to remain theirs, and we're going to have some distinctives, whoever we are, and in our life and worship style as well. Yeah, I've gotten the opportunity to know Pastor Yin or, or John, as he likes to be called. He's probably even taller than you said, maybe six seven. <laughs> we we could learn a lot from his journey from the Sudan, and um, I think he's he has two bullet wounds and 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 tribal mm -hmm. scarring um but the man is on fire for the lord and mm -hmm. and really kind of dwarfs my faith and so I, I appreciate you even mentioning uh mentioning him so how many years were you in africa we were 27 years in africa 13 years in malawi and you know with african bible colleges 
and which is has a board that's made almost altogether of Presbyterian or PCA teaching and ruling elders. And then they ask us to go up to Uganda to start the third African Bible university it was. And so we ventured up to Uganda, my wife, Joanne, and I, and were there when hardly anyone else was on campus. And from scratch, we started with 20 acres. We were able to expand it to 30 acres right outside the capital city of, of, of Kampala. And what a blessing those mm. students were to us. And the school mm -hmm. is still continuing on the outstanding leadership and dedicated teachers that are all long-term. You don't get many long-term missionaries these days, you know, two, two weeks, two months, two years, but 10 years. We were wow. giving awards for all the faculty and staff that were there 10 years. We gave them a clock. To, as an award for having been there for 10 years, and we gave them out every year. Wow. So so what years was that? Because, you know, you've taught at all these seminaries in the United States. So what years were you in Africa for almost 30 years, it sounds like? Well, I, I did a lot of doubling up. I, you know, when Knox was first started, I, I had been at, at, our Covenant Seminary with some of the founders, founding professors at Knox and Bob Raymond and others, and they urged me to somehow come to Knox to help them get started. And mm -hmm. uh, I was in Malawi at the time, but we worked it out where I could teach a full load in Malawi in one semester, and then in the January term in the second semester, I could teach a full load of Old Testament in Knox Seminary. So yeah. for oh, five, six, seven years, something like that, I went back and forth there. And uh, so that's that's one way we, we did it. But then when we went to Uganda to start the the new university there, we went full-time teaching in Africa. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 50 years in the PCA and well, I don't know that you want us to say your age on here, uh, but I'm 85 years of age there. there <laughs> thank you. It's 85. And so you, you were 35 when the PCA was formed and, and, uh, when, when, what denomination were you ordained in? Right. I was a part of the PCUS, the Southern Presbyterian Church, as it is lovingly, was lovingly known, mm -hmm. and was there, uh, I, I would have to think as to, let's see, 15, I was ordained in about uh, 55 or 65, 1965, I'm, I'm thinking, I, I may have my figures wrong, mm -hmm. uh, 65, I, I, yes, I think I was ordained in the PCUS in 1965, in the, in the South Mississippi Presbytery at a metropolis city called Picayune, Mississippi. <laughs> and I had some of my happiest years yes. as a pastor in Picayune, Mississippi. Before the metropolis going. city of, of Picayune, and Picayune means small, right? Is that <laughs> Picayune right. Is, a, is the smallest French coin, and the it, the story is 
and Picayune is very close to New Orleans. And there mm -hmm. was a woman who was from the area that eventually was named Picayune, who was the uh, the editor of the Times Picayune in, <laughs> in New Orleans. And they asked her, well, this little area is developing. What should we call it? And she said, well, name it after my newspaper, Picayune. So it's, mm -hmm. that's where it got its name, Picayune, Mississippi. That's right. The New Orleans Times Picayune. That's the... That's the yeah. newspaper down there, right there. How do you know that, Darren? Darren, how do you know well, that? Well, I so I I formerly pastored First Presbyterian Church in Biloxi, Mississippi, which is not too far away from Picayune, and and went to RTS in Jackson, and right. and I learned it. I just I just milked it for all I could work. I I, <laughs> I came from California to Mississippi, which was as much of a culture shock as you going from the United States to Africa, probably. Oh, so sure. it was, it was quite a, it was quite a difference, but, but it's a, it's a, it's a great place. The Lord is, is, um, I mean, there are just so many wonderful godly people there and yeah. grateful for the, the time in Mississippi. And, and, um, so, I mean, thinking back to you having been ordained in, in, um, the, the mid sixties in, in Picayune, Mississippi, in the Southern Presbyterian church, and then somewhere around um, seven, eight years into your ordained ministry, uh, everything kind of goes haywire. And there is the inception of the National Presbyterian Church, which is now known as the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, tell us a little bit about that from, you know, just an eyewitness point of view and, and your vantage point of what that was like then maybe some even lessons that we can learn now as as uh, members in the local church and those of us who are listening are, as pastors in the local church, um, but for just some of the, the lessons and experiences you had as the PCA came into being. Yes, one, one of the, my fondest uh, memories and experiences in the early days of preceding the PCA and its formation was the character of the pastors and the elders in that in that Southern Presbyterian Church. If you'll excuse mm -hmm. me, having come from California down to Mississippi, in the South, you know, you can talk about the the gracious South, and there is mm -hmm. a certain truth of that, in that you know these men were so committed to mm -hmm. the standards of the church and to upholding those standards but they mm -hmm. fought the good fight in a gracious way they mm -hmm. were not combative they took their stand and they were always courteous and gracious in the way they did it, but they did not waver in the stand that they took. Mm -hmm. The other thing that that affected, that was such a blessing to me in those early days, was the the the, the character of the pastors and the lifestyle of the pastors. I can remember. <laughs> 
the the they had so many wonderful lessons that that they taught in their lifestyle. That just one example comes to mind. There was a pastor in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, what who was kind of on the other side of the railroad track, and then the large part of of Hattiesburg was on this side of the railroad track, and mm-hmm. there was a a movement to plant a new church. And uh, one of the arguments in Presbytery was, no, no, we, we can't, we can't have any more churches. We've got more churches than, than we can actually fill as it is. And to introduce another church is going to take all our membership away from our church. Mm-hmm. And this gracious pastor who had to overcome his location because he was on the other side of the railroad track. He stood up and he said, brothers, when you've got gasoline stations, where do they congregate? One on this corner, one on that corner, one on the next corner. They don't Mm -hmm. bother one another. They attract one another. And the more churches we have, the better. Now, I want to tell you that any time anyone moved into that community, the first person to knock on their door day or night and visit and welcome them into the community was the pastor of that church on the other side of the railroad tracks. And mm-hmm. But he was willing to risk everything if anybody was going to lose members with this new church, he was the one that was going to do so. Mm-hmm. But he stood up in Presbytery and said, go for it, go for it. It will just make us all richer to have another church. And I, you know, if we could get some of that feeling and, you know, this particular Presbytery is very distinctive in that so many of the churches here are church plants. But I get the feeling that it might have been 10 years since we planted another church. I think we're starting one now, but uh, I was really distressed a few presbyteries ago when we closed down a church that we were trying to plant. I had never seen that before. You know, that makes a lot of sense of that meeting. I remember you were you've laid low since you've come into our presbytery, but that I saw it really bothered you that we would be closing that church. I think that might be one of the first times you, you spoke up in a presbytery meeting. And so thanks for sharing just your heart about that now. Cause I, I get it now. <laughs> yeah. I, I was ready. I was ready to volunteer to go and preach over there for free to keep that church mm-hmm. going. Mm-hmm. You just don't kill a church unless it's, you know, I, I can understand, and I don't question the wisdom of the presbytery, but, you know, you know that's just one illustration of these men. They, they're, they're warm-hearted and hard-working. I mean, they were knocking. How many pastors, I, I just wonder how many pastors today do pastoral calls among their membership in their churches? I don't think I, I, when I was in a church in Washington, D.C., I 
we had 25 elders and 25 deacons. I couldn't possibly visit all the people, so I decided to visit all, start with visiting all the elders. Mm -hmm. I came to one of the elders' homes. I knocked on his door. He'd been an elder there for many, many years. He greeted me at the door with his big smile, stuck his hand out to me and said, Welcome. You are the first pastor that has ever come into my home. Well, mm -hmm. I but, uh, you know, how much visitation do we do in evangelism? Mm. You know, you can get, you can often get the, the gas customer list of new people as they come in. And in Picayune, we, we sent out invitations to every person who moved into town. You're welcome to our community. You're welcome to come and visit us. But, you know, to use creativity and, and that's, that's just, that was the attitude and atmosphere. And they weren't so wrapped up into all sorts of finaglings in church politics, if you want to call it that. They were out there taking the gospel. They were <laughs> revivalists, reformationists, you know, reaching out with, with for Christ with the gospel. I, I remember... Well, I think it may have been Frank Barker, one of the early pastors. He there were some gathering together of ministers in a in a restaurant, and there had been some sort of question as to whether they should say a blessing openly, publicly, or whether they should you know, just you know say it quietly. Well, he gets down on his knees in the middle of the restaurant and opens his mouth and leads in prayer for the whole body <laughs> in thanks to the Lord. Well, you know, there you go. So, so just for our listeners to be clear when this, all these stories you're telling this, these are stories of the, uh, the newly founded PCA or of the PCUS you were coming out of. It's, well, it's the same people. Okay, yeah. But it, it would be the newly founded PCA. They're, yeah. They're, they're, yes, it, it, it was mostly illustrations. Well, it, it would have gone back from the PCA. All of these people that I mentioned were founding fathers mm -hmm. of the PCA. Sure, Frank Barker, of course. So what, um, what were some of the, the feelings of having to start a new denomination? I know, I know you guys didn't just jump into that haphazardly. It, it, it must have been a mixture of feelings. What was it like? Yes, it, it, was, it was a difficult decision to make for some. And some decided that they, in conscience, could not feel that they could leave the denomination. And we... Totally respected them. That was another aspect. It wasn't, you know, you, you better come on and, and move along with us. It, it wasn't that kind of thing at all. But you know, I, I, I do remember I was at that time teaching at Westminster and in Philadelphia, and I was outside the bounds of, of where all this activity was going. And I got a call from a pastor who was one of the early leaders of the church and uh, from Macon, Georgia. And he calls and he says, well, Palmer, 
are you with us or are you not with us? <laughs> I had to make my decision. Am I going to cut my ties? You know, for some people, there was the danger that they would lose all their, all the money that they had invested in retirement. Mm. You know, there was some possibility that churches would lose their, their properties. In the Northern Presbyterian Church, that happened regularly. In the Southern Church, because of a, a number of reasons, most of the churches, even the big ones like Carl Ridge Presbyterian, took their whole multi-million dollar building along with them when they came out. But you know, there was questions as to, and so they, you had to be ready to pay the price. And so many, many paid the price of cutting the ties, of venturing out, not knowing what what was going to be there. And the Lord brought us together in a wonderful way. So what what was it for you? If you could if you had to summarize that in your mind, what were some of the key factors in you deciding to leave and, and join this new denomination? Yes. I you know, I the one of the really sad things about the Northern Presbyterian Church is that immediately after the kicking out of Machen and some of his followers that formed the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. They, they didn't leave. They were kicked out of the Northern Presbyterian Church. They were defrocked in a very unjust manner, Machen not even being allowed to speak in the General Assembly in his own defense and, and so forth. But they, uh, when they, they came out within just a few years, they divided again. And they divided over issues that were, in hindsight, were not really proper reasons for dividing. And as I personally looked at the PCUS and those coming out, ooh, Lord, don't let that happen. You know, let us not divide again. And let us have a spirit that will enable us to stay together even if we start on polar opposites and mm -hmm. uh, so that was one thing i had to to work through another was is there a legitimate biblical grounds for separation and some of my very respected people, the president of Reform Seminary that had just been founded a few years before then, Sam Patterson, decided not to leave the, the PCUS out of strong convictions. And we had to honor that. But so what, what my settlement was in what was called the, the Union Presbyteries where the PCA, the PCUS, the Southern Presbyterian Church, approved of the merger of presbyteries along the border of the North and the South, so that a person, if they were brought to trial for not believing the confession or the scriptures, they could decide whether they would be tried by the North which had adopted the Confession of 1967, which denied the virgin birth of Christ, did not affirm the bodily resurrection of Christ, or they could choose to be tried in the South 
under the PCUS, which was still strongly holding mm -hmm. to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And to me, that was a, a legitimate constitutional grounds because now we would have people at the General Assembly level, the highest court of the church, that would no longer be required to mm -hmm. affirm the Westminster Confession of Faith because of these merged presbyteries. So that was something that I had to work with, work through. And in our day now in the in the PCA, one lesson that I would say I would encourage us as brothers not to jump too quickly if if we find ourselves in disagreement with other brothers in in the PCA and separate ourselves. We have to mm -hmm. be really sure that there is a strong and confessional grounds for a separation, if that's what you know we should ever. And Lord, please, if possible, let us continue as as one church and not a mm -hmm. you know, split P, split Presbyterian church. Earlier, before we started recording, I used the the term grassroots with you, and you kind of. Uh, reshaped what I was saying. But my question was, in the founding of the PCA and how the courts of the church were were meant to operate and some of the heart behind the founders in, in writing our book of church order and all of that, how, how do you see or what's some of the reasoning behind how teaching elders and ruling elders and, and floor debates and committees and commissions operate? What is some of how uh, that began as the church was born in 1973. Yes, it, it goes back to the perception as to how the so our beloved Southern Presbyterian Church, the PCUS, had gone into error. How is it that we had moved away from our confessional standards? Well, part of that was the seminaries that led us astray. But the other thing in our perception was the, the denominational, the General Assembly committees, particularly the Committee on Christian Education. And the Committee on Christian Education was putting out literature, the, it was called <laughs> the covenant literature, interestingly, they, they were working with the covenant, mm -hmm. but these, these upper level committees were promoting doctrines and teachings of scripture that were accepting higher critical views. For instance, the unity or disunity of the book of Isaiah and now, behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, rather than a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And so when the structure of the General Assembly was developed, I can remember so well Charles Donahue, who was very much behind this, one of our founding fathers, Charles was sharing with me how relieved he was when we set up the situation of the committees of commissioners. What was the committee of commissioners? The committees of commissioners 
were established so that they would be the place of accountability of the General Assembly committees. And these committees of commissioners were to have an equal number of ruling and teaching elders. Mm -hmm. And these ruling and teaching elders at the General Assembly would receive the reports of the permanent committees, such as Mission to the World, or Mission of North America, or Christian Education, those committees would bring their reports to the committees of commissioners for their review and control. And if these representatives from all the different presbyteries, one elder, one teaching elder, one ruling elder, so alternating from the various presbyteries would come together and the mission to the world executive would have to give account to these ruling and teaching elders. And the whole mm -hmm. structure was designed to keep us from what we felt had led us astray, which was a basically a top-down governance where those few that were in the committees of commission or the permanent committees would determine on their own what their policies would be, how they would function, what they would do with their money, all of those things. And if they produced some literature, the Christian Ed Committee, that, 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 that was for them to decide in the old days. But now, they, whatever they produced was subject to the review and control, not of more hierarchy, certainly not just of pastors or a selection of pastors, <laughs> but of ruling and teaching elders that represented all the different presbyterians. So that's, that was a very critical matter. The other... I mean, so let me, uh, sorry to interrupt, uh, Palmer. So, yeah. you know, at this last General Assembly, we, we actually saw that in action in, in quite a few ways mm -hmm. where, where the Committee of Commissioners, uh, I, I don't know if overrule is the right, was the right word, but actually changed, like didn't go with the committee recommendation, but uh, exercised that authority that they have by virtue of our agreed upon polity to um, to, to take a co different course of action. And so uh, I think, uh, thank you for those original, uh, for you founders who, who put that in place, because I uh, appreciated the ability to do that. And I served on one of those committees myself. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a very healthy thing. And I think that was wonderful to see that functioning in this last General Assembly, that that there were, that these you know, committees of commissioners were there and doing their job. They had received the reports of the permanent committees in advance or bills and overtures and so forth, had reviewed them and then decided by their majority vote, or even they could bring in a minority report, which in at least in one case ended up being approved by the General Assembly as a minority report of one of the committees of commissioners. So, you know, if we can just continue to, to strengthen that, and it, it's a healthy thing because that, that will encourage the those who are executives in the PCA to 
to understand that a part of our unity, a part of our abiding unity will be when we do have an agreement from the presbyteries to what the General Assembly is doing. I, I just was, was thinking, I mean, you, you, have, you have shared a lot about the history of the PCA and, and some of the, the facets of um, how the PCA came into being and what makes a PCA unique. A lot of that um, equality of teaching elders and ruling elders and, and much of what you just said on the, the committee levels. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, Lord willing, and if the Lord tarries, the PCA will be intact in 50 more years. And in order for that to, uh, to be the case, what what do you see the the church and, and I'm speaking specifically of our denomination uh, really needing to to double down upon right now? What what do we need to if we're going to be oh, uh, faithful to the scriptures, uh, true to the reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission? What is it that we truly need to double down upon in order for the PCA to to continue to to be a healthy denomination? In the years to come. Yes, I I think to to be what it professes to be is is the main thing. That the church is satisfied to be what it professes to be. I, I don't see a lot of danger in the PCA at this point, at least, in trying to get involved in declarations about the government and mm -hmm. what should be happening in Washington, D.C. You know, there are issues, the abortion issue and so forth, that, that needs to be spoken to. But that was one of the, the elements of the old denomination that they began to drift into. But the other thing is to, to recognize that they're, they're, the devil is, is so subtle. The devil, devil is very subtle. Mm -hmm. And if we get into caucus as over against open debate for determining issues, we, we're going to lose the unity that we have. Mm -hmm. If you have a group of if, if, if the pattern comes where there's a group over here that are having a caucus before a presbytery meeting or before a general assembly and they're deciding all of these ways that they're going to, steps that they're going to follow to accomplish what they think ought to be done, and another group meeting over here trying to make plans to, to make their program work. You, then, then you've got the, the, the very basic structures of unity being destroyed. But if you have a, a concept that the way in which the church is decided, or is, issues are to be decided, is by open debate. And, and here again, this is where you, <laughs> I would appeal to the lessons I learned from Africa, you know, in terms of worship, you start mm -hmm. when everybody gets there and you finish when everybody's finished. And <laughs> as they say, you've got 
you've got watches, but we've got time. And <laughs> what is the big hurry? Why, why does the mm -hmm. church need executives that will drive us rather than a deliberative assembly in the presbytery and in the general assembly where everyone is satisfied that they've had enough opportunity to express their views, they have been heard, and then a decision is made on the basis of uh, each man having his voice and his vote, and then a decision is made, and we accept that decision. But when you have, you get a feeling that things are being pushed, you know, then you destroy the potential of, of unity. Do you, do you thing, think, yes. Do you, do you think it's pra like the idea to push things to commissions and then you, what we hear is to trust the commission. Do, do you think that's a pragmatic argument because the PCA is getting too large or like, why do you think that is? Why do you think there's a move away from deliberative um, local and national meetings to more commissions to carry out work? Well, I, you know, I, I've seen some of that over the history of the, of the PCA. There was a point in which there was an effort to shorten the uh, assemblies. As a matter of fact, when, when, when the PCA was started, the committees of commissioners would start meeting on Saturday before the General Assembly. And then we would all, there would be no business done on Sunday. Everyone would go to worship and enjoy the fellowship of, of being worshiping morning and evening with the, with the brothers at various churches. And then Monday, everybody was ready to go with, with, with the business and nobody asked any questions about going from Monday to Friday. So you started to Saturday and ran to Friday. And one of the arguments was, well, you'll get more ruling elders if you cut short the assembly from a Tuesday afternoon to a Friday morning. Well, that hasn't worked. We don't have any more representation percentage-wise that way. But we've that cutting down of the time has, I think, been a factor that was a factor that was debated at different points, was decided upon and or tried and reversed for a while. But right now we, we've got a short assembly. And, you know, that, that's not, you know, that's not that you must have a long assembly, but um, I, I think men need to appreciate the the value of everyone you know please let some of the ruling elders have an opportunity to express themselves in presbytery meetings in general assembly mm -hmm. encourage them to come with understanding and to make their views known i you mm -hmm. know i in the presbytery we're in we have uh really good ruling elder involvement. And I'm glad we have a Saturday meeting because it enables ruling elders to come. And you actually have to report, you have to get an excused absence if you don't send your REs. But 
I, I come from a presbytery that I think in some meetings, wherever it was hosted, they would tell in that presbytery, that church, make sure you have your ruling elders there because those would be the only two ruling elders in the whole meeting or whatever would make a quorum. And I, I think in recent years, there's been a move to say, you know, let the teaching elders, let the pastors do the, the business of the church and you guys just shepherd the flock uh, kind of thing. And uh, so I appreciate your heart behind expressing the need for ruling elders to to speak up, to have a voice, to be involved in the courts of the church. Yeah. Any more thoughts on on that in particular? Well, uh, nothing in particular, just just that we should all in, encourage our, our ruling elders They, you know, they common sense is a is a very important factor. And uh, people, are, you know, as a minister, I'm speaking as a minister. Sometimes we're not as practical as we need to be. <laughs> and, uh, some voices from ruling elders, you know, uh, that's yeah. where most of the money comes from. It comes from the ruling elders, and they should feel like they have a right to decide where their money is going and be happy about how their money is being spent. Was there any kind of a um, noteworthy role ruling elders had in the founding of the of the PCA? Uh, yes, there, there were several organizations that preceded the formation of the PCA, and one of them was called Concerned Presbyterians. And it was uh, Kenneth Kyes from down in your original area in Miami was a major feature there. Uh, there was another Presbyterian Churchman United was uh, was of the ministers, but you know, this was an organization of the ruling elders. Another was the Pensacola Theological Institute, in which there was a lot of participation by ruling elders coming in and the Presbyterian Journal was the magazine that it was started by L. Nelson Bell, who was the father-in-law of Billy Graham from right up here in Asheville, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And he started that magazine to counter the liberal magazine that, that was called the Presbyterian Outlook. And... Uh, so the Southern Pres it was called the Southern Presbyterian Journal, started by a ruling elder, and he he had been a missionary for many years as a medical doctor, and Ruth Bell Graham, if you know, she grew up on the mission field, but uh, there was a lot of lay participation in all of those different organizations that preceded the founding of the PCA. Now, I know we're we're uh, we're running long, maybe, but I would I would love to hear uh, some ministry reflections you have over 60 plus years of, of ministry as as like you said, a jack of all trades, a, a professor, a, a missionary, a theologian, an author, a pastor, all of it. it, it this Christian life that you've seen it all and you've seen it across the globe. What would you? What are what are some of your reflections and encouragements for for this generation of Christians? Ah, that's a big question. <laughs> Too big. Another episode. <laughs> I I don't know that I I can uh, 
let's see. What kind of reflections can I give? <laughs> Maybe we'll have you on another day. <laughs> uh, but don't cut me off too quickly. I, I do have good. a couple of thoughts. That I All right, good. I'm glad. We, we'll go as long as you want. So this is great. Interesting. There was an interview recently with of Sinclair Ferguson. And uh, someone, you know, he's a near... He and I are about the same age. I'm. I think I'm a little older than he. Yeah, maybe a, quite a bit older. But at any rate, <laughs> they were asking, you know, looking back over your career, what would you change? And one of the things that he said was more Bible. And you say Sinclair Ferguson more Bible, and mm -hmm. I would agree one hundred percent more Bible. I do not think the younger generation really appreciates the prophets. I don't think they have read much in the book of Proverbs. I th and that's a judgment that I'm giving here, and that sounds negative, and maybe they do, but, you know, the, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, is, is, is so critical for our own personal lives, and for our ministry, the more we absorb the Bible, the, the better. The other thing that he said is more prayer. And I think that's absolutely critical. And the third was more love. All of those elements are, are really very critical for the next generation and the generation after that, too. Those things that are just so so basic mm. that makes the man and determines the the future of the life of the church. How do you think? And this will be my last question. But how do you think the church can go about cultivating that in her people better than it is now? I mean, that better than the church is doing so now. And when you think of, you know, the, when I ask the question, you know, the next 50 years of the PCA, you know, our, our future pastors, ruling elders, mothers, fathers, campus ministers, businessmen are all coming out of the children uh, that are that have yet to be born even and including the children that are born. So what can the church do now to uh, to to cultivate the church in a direction where there's more Bible, more prayer, more love? Mm -hmm. Great question, Darren. Man. Uh, yes, that is a very good question. I, um, I think prayer to, the, to that goal. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think uh, along with that, more catechism. I, interestingly, I, I took copies of the children's catechism over to the Great Commission Church, the Sudanese, and uh, I gave out copies to the men, and they said, oh, that looks good. Could, could we have some more? Well, how many more do you want? Well, five? Well, ten? Well, fifteen? Sure, I'll give you fifteen. Here's fifteen right here. And could we have some more? Yeah. How many more you want? Well, 15 more. Okay. So I've taken in 30 children's catechisms, and they are excited about that. They're mm -hmm. raising up their, that generation. But that, you know, that kind of 
foundation deep down in the soul that's memorized. Yeah. Calvin did it, said you you got to raise a, a children that know the catechism. They have to learn the catechism. It has to be deep, deep inside those basic doctrines and truths. Now, as, as far as scripture reading, I think a, a, by example, and of course, I would urge everyone to to get Matthew Henry's way to pray that I have revised. Uh, it's it's a marvel. It's a absolutely unique book. All scripture turned into a re form of prayer. It will change your life if you use it. Uh, I've, I've used it more than any other book in my over all my life since my conversion my mother gave me her copy and <clears throat> that will enlarge your prayer visions massively and it, i think encouraging you know through the bible reading annual through the bible reading i'm gonna schedule my wife joanna has developed her own five-day schedule instead of seven days and uh, she's coordinated the psalms with the historical books of the old testament very interestingly uh, but you know you have to make a deliberate commitment and yes you start every january but you can start in march as well you can start in october and read through the bible this year i had one good ARP pastor's wife tell me that for something like 20 years she has read through the Bible every year and that would be a great challenge. I try to read through the Psalms every month. You know if you go back and see what the monks used to do they'd read through the Psalms every week and uh, memorizing large portions of scripture just you know, all sorts of encouragement. The Navigator's you know, memory system is a great place to start. There are lots of practical ways. Wow. That's a great word, Dr. Robertson. Thank you so much for those um, insights and words of wisdom, um, reflections upon your ministry, the contributions that you've made. What a What a privilege it's been to spend a little bit of time with you uh, today. It's uh, It's been a joy and Lord willing, we'll have the opportunity to do it again in the future. Thank you so much, Darren and George as well. It was a blessing for me. Oh, likewise, likewise. And so I guess with that, we will sign off. And so, uh, yeah, maybe we'll have you on another day. This, this, was, this was great. Very good. Well, I hope you were blessed by that interview with Dr. Robertson as I have. I never get sick of hearing it and just the encouragement that he has over his life of ministry for us today. And with that, we'll sign off from the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman, and I will leave you with a message from our sponsor, Birmingham Theological Seminary. You may have heard me speak of BTS on previous podcasts and uh, interviews with Ike Reeder, actually the president over at BTS, but I'm in their D-Min program, their doctor ministry program in apologetics. It's the only one I know of in the country. But also they have great programs for ruling elders, ministry uh, leadership certificates for ruling elders that teach everything from uh, covenant theology to our polity to biblical theology and even peacemaking. Listen to this message from Birmingham Theological Seminary. 
The heart of BTS is first and foremost to be faithful. Faithful to the Word of God, to the sufficiency of Scripture, to knowing we serve a sovereign Lord. The second component of the heart of BTS is accessibility. We're affordable. We're flexible. We work with students to help them achieve goals. This isn't our journey. It's your journey for serving the Lord. It's your journey that God has called you to. So we pray that while God expands and grows the opportunities that we have, that we never lose sight to provide quality, reformed theological education, faithfully and accessibly, so that we can serve the local church by building leaders for his kingdom.